0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, Altera, we hardly knew you. We're looking at a bizarre episode in tax litigation, where just as practitioners, companies, and journalists, we're trying to understand the effects of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upholding IRS regulations. The court issued an order withdrawing that opinion. To help us figure out how we got here, and where things stand. I'm joined by Tax Notes Today contributing editor Kristen Perillo and Worldwide Tax Daily legal reporter Ryan Finley. Kristen, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you you. for having us. As I understand it, this case involves uh, regulations issued under uh, Section 482 of the Internal Revenue Code, uh, which deals with uh, issues of allocating income. Uh, What is the, the underlying issue of this case?
1: So the case deals with a cost-sharing arrangement, which is a type of transaction uh, recognized under the Section 482 regulations in which parties agree to share the cost of intangible development in proportion to their reasonably anticipated benefits.
0: Now, these are related companies, right? Yes. So that's what we're dealing yes. with here. Yes, these are
1: related parties. So one of the key issues involved in the cost-sharing regulations is is determining which costs have to be included in this cost pool that's shared. The Altera case involves a challenge to a regulation requiring inclusion of stock-based
0: compensation in that shared cost pool. Now, by stock-based compensation, you're saying like uh, options? Yes, stock options paid to employees, but exactly. So we're talking a very large portion in a technology company. That would be a lot of the compensation. Yes, yes.
1: It is particularly significant among tech companies, which also happen to be companies that engage in cost-sharing arrangements as part of their IP planning structure. The 2003 cost-sharing regulations specify that to satisfy the arm's length standard under the 482 regulations, the parties have to share stock-based compensation along with any other cost attributable to intangible development. Taxpayers and practitioners objected when this regulation was first proposed, arguing that there's no evidence that unrelated parties would ever share stock-based compensation and therefore that the rule violates the arm's length standard. The IRS succinctly rejected these comments in the preamble of the final regulation, noting that the transactions cited in these comments weren't comparable to cost-sharing arrangements and that the arm's length standard set out in the 482 regulations and the commensurate with income standard in Section 482 of the code require that all costs be shared.
0: Now, this case isn't the first time that even the Ninth Circuit has had to weigh in on stock-based compensation under the 482 regulations.
1: No, it isn't. Altair, in some ways, is a repeat of the Xilinx case, in which the IRS argued that the 1995 version of cost-sharing regulations, which said all costs must be shared but didn't explicitly address stock-based compensation, should be interpreted as including stock-based compensation costs. The tax court held in a 2005 decision that the IRS's Section 482 authority must always be applied on the basis of the arm's length standard using data from arm's length transactions, and therefore that the IRS could not require inclusion of stock-based compensation in light of evidence that unrelated parties wouldn't do so. According to the tax court, this interpretation of the arm's length standard is required by the statute, and Congress didn't intend to change the law when it added the commensure with income standard, 1986. When Xilinx was appealed to the Ninth Circuit, the court originally reversed the tax court. The court held that the 482 regulations were ambiguous because the arm's length standard and the requirement that all costs be shared can't be reconciled. The original decision said that the specific provision should take priority over the more general provision, but a judge later changed his mind and the court issued a new decision holding that the ambiguity should be resolved in favor of the traditional interpretation of the arm's length standard, which is based on comparables. So, the regulations weren't ambiguous anymore in Altera, so the taxpayer instead argued that the reg was invalid under the Administrative Procedures Act, because the IRS failed to rebut comments that showed that unrelated parties wouldn't share stock-based compensation. The tax court accepted this argument in its 2015 decision, which invalidated the regulation.
2: The tax court said that for regulations based on an empirical determination, the factual premises underlying the regulation have to be based on evidence or known transactions and not on assumptions or theories. If they're not, the regulations don't comply with the APA. So in this case, the court said the IRS's decision-making process was fundamentally flawed because it rested on speculation rather than hard data and expert opinions, and because the IRS failed to respond to all the public comments that unrelated parties wouldn't share stock compensation costs.
0: Now, we're talking about a decision under the Administrative Procedure Act. What is the Administrative Procedure Act, and how does it apply here?
2: So the APA sets out the procedural requirements that federal agencies like the IRS have to follow when they issue new rules. One of the core APA requirements is that agencies have to follow a notice and comment period so the public can you know, have a chance to submit their views on proposed regulations. And after that comment period has ended, the agency has to consider their comments and then give an explanation in the final rule on the purpose and basis of what they've come to in their regulation. And if someone believes the regulation will adversely affect them, the APA provides a mechanism for them to ask a court to review the agency's action.
0: What happened in the now withdrawn opinion of the Ninth Circuit?
2: So the Ninth Circuit reversed the tax court and said the cost-sharing regulations didn't violate the APA. So that meant the regulations were now valid the appeal was heard by a three-judge panel. Two judges agreed with the IRS and one judge sided with Altera. So we had a split 2-1 decision. The majority said the IRS adequately explained in the final regulation why it believed it could require related parties to share stock compensation costs. And the fact that taxpayers had sent comments opposing that position wasn't fatal to a conclusion that there was no APA violation The panel essentially said the IRS gave notice of what it intended to do, and it considered the comments, but ultimately rejected them.
0: Now, there's something a little bit unusual about the panel holding or overturning the tax court opinion. What is that?
2: Well, one of the the two concurring judges was Judge Reinhardt. He passed away in March, which was about five months after the oral arguments were heard in the appeal and that was about four months before the decision came out in July. Um, there was a footnote on the first page of the opinion that said Judge Reinhardt had fully participated in the case and formally concurred in the majority opinion prior to his death, but a lot of pr- practitioners felt it was inappropriate to include his vote you know, from the grave is how some of them described it.
0: How does the Ninth Circuit's opinion in withdrawn opinion. How does it differ from the tax court's interpretation of Section 482?
1: So the most important difference is that the withdrawn opinion concludes that Section 482 allows the IRS to apply what the court calls purely internal methods of allocation, that is methods that don't rely on comparables. According to the opinion, the IRS authority is not limited to the traditional arm's length standard, which always requires reference to market comparables. The opinion says the arm's length standard is aspirational and not descriptive and that Section 482 requires parity in taxable income between controlled and uncontrolled taxpayers, not parity in the method of allocation itself. It doesn't specify whether the result would be different if the commensure with income standard weren't added in 1986, but it does refer to it frequently in supporting the conclusion that the IRS can price transfers of intangibles using methods that don't rely on comparable data. Although the opinion doesn't explicitly address the argument, it also appears to reject the taxpayer's view that cost-sharing payments made under a cost-sharing arrangement don't involve an intangible transfer and therefore aren't subject to the commensurate with income standard.
0: Why was this opinion withdrawn?
2: We don't know exactly, but there's been a lot of speculation a lot of practitioners had voiced concerns that including Judge Reinhardt's vote was inappropriate because he had passed away before the decision was issued. So people were just guessing that the court was responding to those concerns. Just a few days before the opinion was withdrawn, the court issued an order saying that Judge Susan Graber would be replacing Judge Reinhardt on the panel, So then the court issued an order saying it was withdrawing the opinion so that the reconstituted panel could further consider the appeal. So people are speculating that Judge Graber decided it would be better if she could review the case de novo rather than move forward to a a possible panel rehearing. So the court is essentially acting as though Judge Graber replaced Judge Reinhardt soon after his death and that the July 24 decision was never issued.
0: Now, having uh, the Ninth Circuit issue an opinion in favor of the IRS position and then withdrawing it later, that that echoes what happened before in Xilinx. Are there other parallels and echoes that you're seeing?
1: There are. Um, In addition to it involving the same or a very similar underlying issue, the Ninth Circuit originally reversed the tax court's decision in favor of the taxpayer, only later to withdraw that opinion and issue a new opinion, affirming the tax court decision. The final Xilinx decision was a two-to-one decision, and the one dissenter was Judge Reinhardt, the same judge who died during the Altera case. So what happens now?
2: Well, the court issued an order on August 16th that said oral reargument will be held on October 16th. I spoke with a few practitioners who speculated that Judge Graeber watched a recording of the original oral argument from October 2017 and read the party's briefs and that she decided it would be helpful to hold another oral argument so she could directly question the party's counsels. Um, So it's unlikely there will be any further developments until October. Once oral arguments are held, it could be several months until the panel issues The new decision. It's anybody's guess at this point how the panel will rule. They could reach the same 2 1 split in favor of the IRS that the original panel came to, or they could go 2 1 in favor of Altera. It's also possible, though pretty unlikely, they could reach a unanimous decision in favor of either party. I've spoken with some practitioners who are familiar with Judge Graber. They said she's very smart thorough, centrist, and not very political. And they seem to think it's more likely she'll uphold the regulations.
0: Kristen, Ryan, thank you for being here.
2: Thank Thank you you for having us.
0: And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper,
3: what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Sam Brunson argues that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act's simplified kiddie tax has regressive elements and is less effective at preventing income shifting. Michael Cannon examines how the TCJA's disallowance of immediate expensing for tax-exempt use property affects many investment funds and describes how fund managers may avoid the rules. In state tax notes, George Isaacson and David Bertoni argued that the U.S. Supreme Court's overruling of stare decisis in recent decisions could have profound implications for jurisprudence in the tax arena and many other areas of law. And the newest installment of Academic Perspectives on SALT continues the series on Wayfair with the discussion on sales tax formalism and the extent to which it survives. And in Tax Notes International, Bruce Zagaris discusses Trump administration policies, including change U.S. foreign and international trade policy, tax transparency, and economic sanctions. Also, practitioners from TPNC take a look at how the OECD and the EU plan to address the challenges of taxing the digital economy, suggesting that the EU's proposed approach may increase compliance burdens and threaten the delicate balance of international taxation. You can read all that and a
0: lot more in the September 3rd editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalysts.org. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get the next episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast
3: constitutes legal, accounting or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.